I'm Nick Harvey Doyle, an Anawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. How anxious are you about the environment right now? I'm starting to get pretty anxious about it, to be honest. The uncertainty of things is what really makes me anxious, yeah. I get pretty bad climate anxiety. Like, sometimes I I can't sleep because I'm just, like, thinking about the state of the world. Very anxious, just because I feel like a lot of it's out of my control. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Thomas Phillips. Eco-anxiety is the chronic fear of environmental doom. While the American Psychiatric Association acknowledges its existence, it doesn't classify it as a pathology. It's a rational response to the world around us, and it's especially prevalent among young people. At best, eco-anxiety can motivate collective action, but it can also lead to paralysis and despair. This week, we're bringing you stories from both sides of the spectrum. It's the first episode of Climate Generation, a two-part series about uncertain futures, impending crises, and the generation forced to navigate them. First up, Georgina Seabar's interview with Sam Brigden, a young Australian overwhelmed by how little she can do in the face of climate change. Georgina started by asking Sam to describe the nature of her eco-anxiety. I kind of just feel I need to do whatever I can to help when I know that we're in such a dire circumstance. I start getting quite anxious about the things that I do and it feels like every action can have an impact. It kind of starts to infiltrate every part of your life and so then that leads to kind of an anxiety that you don't have a solution for. At the same time as I was becoming a young adult and just starting to feel that responsibility for every choice in my life, the climate emergency was getting a lot worse. So that was kind of intrinsically linked. And so then the anxiety just kind of naturally came with that. Do you feel that the pressure to be more environmentally friendly negatively affects the amount of anxiety that you are under? Definitely adds to my anxiety a lot. As a lot of people know, many more sustainable options are also a lot more expensive. If I'm not in the financial state, which when I've only started full-time work within the last year, I generally haven't been in the financial state. It's been quite difficult to feel so guilty when I don't choose to spend a lot of money on a more sustainable option. Do you feel that there is too much pressure put on individuals to solve what is essentially a collective global problem? Absolutely. I think Obviously, like there's only so much you can do as individuals. And so when bigger change isn't happening, it can feel like the things you're doing don't actually make a difference. I just have that knowledge that even if I do all these things individually, that it doesn't make a big enough difference unless everyone's doing it. And it's pretty unfair to put that pressure on the individual when it is a global problem. It's a collective problem that will affect everyone. What would you like to see from the government going forward to take the pressure off individuals? the high costs of some of the more sustainable options, that could be affected by the government. They could put subsidies in place that help with that. 
one of the biggest problems with climate change is that the costs and the benefits are so widely divided. Younger people would benefit the most from climate change stopping, but they can't afford to pay those costs. That was Georgina Seabar reporting. Since 1988, the annual amount of woodland burned by Australian bushfires has grown by 800%. Experts agree that climate change is to blame, and southeastern Australia has become especially fire-prone due to hotter, drier summers. In our next report, Philman Ho interviews climate activist Tasha Garwood about the increasing frequency of these fires and how younger generations could help mitigate this problem. He started by asking Tasha how these fires are affecting local communities and ecosystems. It's honestly quite terrifying because Australia is so rich in fauna and flora and the areas that are most impacted are the most biodiverse as well. It is it is saddening in terms of that natural aspect, but also socially as well, because a lot of people had to evacuate everything that they knew, essentially, where they were living, their homes. A lot of misplacement, a lot of fire brigade workers would have to concentrate in those areas to tackle the fires, essentially and the damage that it could have posed and has posed, it's honestly such a significant detrimental impact. So the state government has implemented several measures such as plant burning, mulching and slashing of forests to reduce the risk of bushfires. What do you think about the long-term feasibility of these strategies? I'm not sure if I should say an effective mitigation scheme, but it is a scheme nonetheless. In terms of effectiveness, I question it. Because rising temperatures are the underlying cause of the severity of these fires that we're experiencing. These schemes that the government has posed may not be enough and clearly is not enough because we're seeing an increase in frequency with these fire events as well. And honestly, I think educating our populace would be quite effective as well. Would you say increasing access to education would help the public make a more informed decision? I would say 100%. And as soon as you start, it's really good because you start early. And then that carries on through generations. Those people become our leaders and those people become our business owners, companies who most likely use fuels or carbon dioxide. And it'll just involve more awareness towards sustainability, carbon footprints, carbon dioxide emissions in general. And like I said, the sooner the better because people are getting older, generations are moving on. If we continue to prolong this, then we won't see an end to rising temperatures and environmental catastrophes. That was Phil and Ho reporting. In our final story, Amelia Costigan investigates a way to protect the environment and improve mental health, rejuvenating inner-city green spaces. She spoke to Melanie Deverne, the director of the Australian Urban Observatory, about the Upper Stony Creek Transformation Project. The initiative has created biodiverse wetlands in a once derelict creek of Sunshine North, a suburb 13 kilometres west of Melbourne CBD. Amelia started by asking Melanie how her team has tackled the project. The aim really was to transform the creek. It was to take a concrete drain and to re-naturalise it into something that would have been what it resembled in the past. And 
in doing so, it would have improved the biodiversity and the ecology of the area as well as um, have a climate mitigation impact, particularly in the West where it's quite hot at particular times and doesn't have a lot of urban greening in the surrounds and to really improve the health and well-being of the local residents too. And how do urban green spaces actually mitigate climate effects like how does that work yeah so one thing we already know through existing research is that a vegetated space can decrease the temperature of a surrounding neighborhood up to four degrees or more so just even having an area that has vegetation in it has a cooling effect and what are kind of the public health benefits of implementing these spaces well, one of the most immediate things would be physical and mental health in terms of a place to walk, to recreate, to socialise, to connect with others. And then you have the mental health benefits. So um, we know that green spaces are really important for restoration, improved concentration, mental health and well-being. And some research over in Europe has actually found how they can be the equivalent of an antidepressant effect in living right next to these spaces. So if you're in an area that doesn't have have a lot of space and you create a new natural space then that's also going to have a huge impact on physical and mental health. And what does the site look like today? What kind of progress has been made? It has turned into quite a beautiful location now that there are wetlands and there are native grasses and it looks great but unfortunately there's no canopy coverage so the way the development work was done along the creek meant that it was too difficult to plant trees because of the location and the concrete still remaining so that is one thing that will influence heat for the local residents do we need more green and blue spaces in victoria so i think now we've been involved in something like six sites across the city and they really do go across all areas of the city it's not just in the west or in the east so i can see that this is going to be ongoing and it's definitely important because that role of blue space and cool water and climate and vegetation it's just going to be essential as we get hotter and hotter with climate change it's going to be even more and more important it's great to see people coming together on it that was amelia costigan a massive thank you to georgina Philman, and amelia the yarn is from the center for advancing journalism at the university of melbourne it's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Mixing and mastering was by Elliot Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week.